1: We live in a world where extreme weather has become commonplace, where biodiversity is crashing, and where global food supply disruptions are increasing. In other words, a world where the long-forecast consequences of a warming planet are everyday events. Searching for, quote, climate change, unquote, on Google produces 1.1 billion results in less than a second. It seems almost everyone everywhere is talking about it, including the great and the good who are gathered in Glasgow at the UN's 26th Climate Change Conference. But what is actually being done? The gap between rhetoric and action is critical. And action comes in two flavors, top-down policies that aim to decarbonize in potentially dramatic ways and bottom-up behaviors of ordinary people, communities, companies that sometimes reinforce and sometimes work against those policy goals. Santiago Goland, CEO of the Rainforest Alliance, has spent years in both arenas, advocating for good climate policy and working with a range of civil society to counter some of the biggest impacts of climate change on flora as well as fauna. Welcome, Santiago. Glad to be here, Alan. Thank you. One of the bigger ironies of the moment, I think, is that even as the politicians negotiate in Glasgow, The world is caught in a, quote, energy crisis, unquote, which is defined as a shortage of gas, oil, coal, with countries scrambling to find hydrocarbons to burn. Politicians and voters seem more worried about a potentially cold winter than they are about the reality of a warming planet. That may be a little bit unfair, but doesn't this suggest there's a profound failure somewhere in the food chain uh, of how climate policies have been shaped executed, and explained to citizens.
2: I would agree with that. And there's always this tension, this polarity between the short-term gains and the longer-term sustainability of those policies. But the science is damning, right? And uh, we know that we need fast and drastic measures. The planet right now is 1.8 Fahrenheit warmer than it was before the Industrial Revolution. And last month, scientists rang the alarm bell more loudly than ever before with the IPCC report, as you know, Alan. The good news is that we know what needs to be done and it has to be in the nature-based solution space, 37% of uh, what's needed for climate uh, mitigation. So to that sort of a polarity between short-term energy needs and the longer-term climate situation, without any doubt, we can't wait to act on nature based solutions and more renewable sources of energy in the planet, and I hope that these you know bottlenecks this moment of tensions are a way to propel the greener energies you know forward faster better aligning subsidies and aligning incentives to get that energy transition.
1: I want to focus on nature-based solutions in a second, but you suggested already that the flag of keeping the warming below 1.5 degrees is sort of a false flag. That is to say that the science is telling us, I think, that the planet has warmed so much already and there's so much carbon in the atmosphere that we will blow past this 1.5. And, to where we go is a different issue. As part of this gap between leaders and their citizenry, why do you think the people in Glasgow are so committed to pretending that 1.5 is 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 a manageable limit when it doesn't seem to be?
2: Well, I mean, the science there even the IPCC report opens a glimpse of hope because What it says is that if we can achieve net zero carbon emissions, then we could stabilize rising temperatures. And even more, it says we can reverse the trend and see some cooling in the planet. So that means dramatically cutting greenhouse gas emissions by switching to clean technology, clean energy, and stopping deforestation mainly, but also embracing proven nature-based, nature-climate solutions like reforestation, ecosystem conservation, regenerative agriculture, etc., as part of the new mix for economic development, right? So there is a glimpse. It's, you know, tough, but we need to see courageous leadership and fast action without any doubt. I'm going to
1: push back because I wonder how much of it is leadership and how much of it is followership. That is to say, are people really, do people understand what net zero means to their daily lives, to their commuting to their heating, to their cooling, um, to where they live, to how they live. I think that, and I'm skeptical. I I ask the question in a way that suggests how skeptical I am, Uh, because every time we see prices begin to go up, we see people go to the streets, whether it's in Paris, in Germany, in the UK, in, in, in parts of the United States. So are people ready for this change? And if not, if not, how do we get them there?
2: Look, I mean, when, let me put an example, right? When we were facing the ozone layer crisis, right? That was, you know, produced by CFCs, chlorofluorocarbonates, and the industry, you know, aerosols, et cetera, decided to shift to butane and propane, which didn't have an impact on the ozone layer. And then the issue was solved. It is, you know, unrealistic to expect that consumer choice will solve all of this, right? Sometimes... You need you know, to drive the key levers of market transformation, which are three, mainly. Change the supply. Look at the you know, electric cars, for example. What do you need to change the markets for transportation? Well, you need the innovation and the supply of electric vehicles. That's point one. You need the rules of the game, the incentives and subsidies, the policies to incentivize that transition. And then you need demand. You need people to choose those cars. But without the three working in tandem, the innovation and the supply, uh, in the case of aerosols, was butane and propane, the demand, people picking the, pro- the, the products and the policies aligning with the transition, you can't really achieve it. So I think it's the three things, Alan.
1: Now let's go back to leadership. Do you think that at the global, national, regional, local levels, we've been seeing the kind of leadership that makes people aware of of what 's coming at them i 've been surprised at how surprised people are with the onset of extreme weather. You know the science you follow the science for decades. This is after all the twenty sixth cop meeting um, we 've known for a long time that intense weather was coming at us uh, all extremes. California literally at the moment is going from extreme drought to to and fires to extreme uh, rainfall um, from a scientific point of view, that's not a surprise. From a citizenry point of view, obviously it's a surprise because they are surprised. So your three levers are certainly right. But how do you get people not just forced to do things, but actually to do things? It's an unfair question. I, 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 I oh, it's, it's, But it is the $64,000 question, unfortunately.
2: What I see happening right now is that business is starting to realize that they're hitting a wall in terms of um, resilience of value chains and that there is no place to go. I mean, food and agriculture is an example, right? That are the key driver of habitat loss, particularly in the tropical forests, right? And so you see Uh, you know, hundreds of companies setting net zero targets and trying to move towards more net positive impacts. There is also the transparency mechanisms, a lot of which, you know, the Rainforest Alliance and other organizations provide with, uh, you know, their standards and uh, uh, certification and communications that it's difficult, it's hard for companies to keep driving habitat loss without shifting their entire business models. And as you know, in countries where the policy systems are more fragile, and you know those well, you know, an example in Latin America countries, the role of foreign direct investment, the role of big markets is crucial to, um, you know, to influence the policy environment so that those businesses are more resilient. That's where we are right now. So what I hope to see is more pre-competitive, shared responsibility across value chains that work with civil society and with governments to support local communities in finding sustainable development pathways to hit the triple crisis of the SDGs, climate and biodiversity. That's where I hope to see more of in this COP and beyond.
1: Let me drill down there because you've worked for years with corporate leaders, uh, not just in Latin America, but worldwide. Uh, Some of them are actually doing stuff and some that are just mouthing the words. Is your sense, and you suggested it a moment ago, is your sense that more serious business people are understanding that now they actually have to stop talking and stop acting?
2: Yeah, I think that for businesses right now, the cost of inaction is higher than the cost of action, right? And this has been measured, right? I mean, the, there is an estimate that says that the cost of inaction eh, and the risk of deforestation alone is estimated at $53.1 billion, while the cost of responding to all risks associated with that is just $6.6 billion. So there is a kind of a, again, looking at reality in the eye. Business leaders now can't kick the can as they could in the past. Remember, you know, there were three big waves in business. First, trying to understand what this was all about, right? Sustainability. And that was a whole compliance and reporting movement. Then many companies began to integrate this agenda into their business models, right? So you saw more sustainable brands or, you know, purpose-driven brands or zero deforestation, products, et cetera. Now, they are at a point where they realize that if they don't work together on a shared responsibility, you know, a cross-sector collective action to define enabling environments for sustainable development, they won't be able to sustain their businesses. Um, then there is a whole question about growth itself. That is a different topic, you know, but I think that right now, It's less about, you know, if there is a moral imperative in business leaders, some of which do have that moral imperative, you know, when they look at their kids and their families. But it's like, you know, either you're coming at this from an ethical perspective, from a rational perspective, there's no other way. Or from a, you know, fear perspective, you're going to be cornered through, you know, consumer pressure or stakeholder or shareholder pressure, etc. I think... The world is conspiring to create the shift you are now leading the rainforest alliance and obviously
1: rainforests are a critical part of in a sense both the problem and the solution or the destruction of rainforest is part of the problem the the rebuilding of rainforest is part of the solution uh, and, and i've talked to some of my friends in colombia and ecuador and brazil and they are incredibly pessimistic about where things are at the moment Talking about tipping point, how much of the forest is gone or
2: not gone?
1: How can the rainforests be saved at this point?
2: In the case of the Amazon, which is interesting, I mean, Tom Lovejoy who's a great scientist, has done enormous studies there. There's been a science panel um, launched. It's been launched now in the COP, right, with uh, 400 scientists globally looking at the tipping point of the Amazon. You know that the whole rainfall in South America comes from those flying rivers in the Amazon, the humidity, and there's been already areas that are highly deforested that change the hydrological cycles from four, four uh, rainfalls a year to two, etc. So we are in a kind of in a pretty uh, difficult moment. Now, there is also that, I guess, level of awareness in the companies and countries that operate in the nine countries of the Amazon a tropical forest about not only stopping deforestation, doing less harm, but starting and accelerating the reparation and the reforestation and regeneration of those ecosystems on which our lives depend, very literally. And so one of the things that the Rainforest Alliance and a CEO of the Rainforest Alliance had just joined in May I'm honoured because you know Daniel Katz and uh, his colleagues 35 years ago, like Chris Wheely and many others, recognised something pretty visionary, I guess, that you can't really have thriving forests without thriving communities and that ag systems played a critical role on the climate and biodiversity and that managing those buffer areas in the tropical forest with the sustainable management of protected areas in sync was essential to the solution. So what we are working on right now is making sure we integrate at a landscape level the sectors that matter in those tropical forests with those landscapes and communities in order to find more integrated strategies to the sustainable management of those landscapes. Um, I think there is a ton of capital. There is the, the, we have the institutional frameworks. You know, Array developed all this market-based, locally empowered, context-driven kind of a sector um, uh, protocols, right? I hope we're going to see an, sort of an acceleration of uptake of these sustainability practices. And hopefully that creates a new wave of change for the world. Uh, but nobody has the answer, I I'm, I'm, I think, uh, like, uh, uh, by default, need to be optimistic and double down our efforts. This is the generation we were born in, we didn't pick it, but it's an imperative that we respond to it with everything we've got, right? And uh, so that's the, that's the task.
1: What do climate change and jazz greats John Petitucci, Terry Lynn Carrington and Joe Lovano have in common? Telberg's Jazz for the Planet. Listen and watch them perform new music about the climate and about climate action at jazzfortheplanet.org. Let me be rude and ask the precise question about tipping point. And I don't care whether it's 18 or 19 or 20 percent. Do you think, based on your understanding of the science, that the tipping point can be avoided? first question. And the second question is going to be, do you think based on your reading of the politics, and that I don't just mean elected politics, but broad politics, that if A is possible, that B will, will in fact, kick in substantially enough to, to prevent
2: it? Yeah. So the science that have been looking at this are saying three things, really. You know, Stopping deforestation, which is already high, uh, still high, but starting the reforestation. And, and that means natural regeneration. It's not just planting trees only, you know, but it's the whole uh, sort of suite of conservation strategies from agroforestry to reforestation, regeneration, et cetera, is needed. So we can't just look at doing less harm. We are at a point where we need to accelerate the restoration, so that's that's point one, right? Point two is on the there is a green finance gap in natural climate solutions, right? That has been estimated by the Paulson Institute, Cornell University, and the Nature Conservancy, a you know, big study last year that quantifies the gap that is needed in investment to really accelerate those nature-based solutions. We hope that at the COP this week, we're gonna see action and commitments at a policy level and funding level to get that done, right? And then in terms of the orchestration of the politics and the incentives, you know, I hope we see better coordination between the private sector, civil society and governments to accelerate execution. Because right now, the issue is not an issue of why we need to do this or what it is that we need to do it's an issue of how fast can we do it and the failure in the sector is a failure of execution so my focus with rainforest alliance and this is why boots on the ground the respect for local capacity the acknowledgement of indigenous communities rights etc is so crucial is the only way you can really accelerate implementation is by supporting those guardians of the tropical forests that know how to do it and that are there, leaving it in, day in, day out, right? So that bottom-up approach is going to be critical to execute faster in those uh, key buffer areas and tropical forests.
1: Science and what's known of the forest by those who've long lived in the forest can perhaps give us new directions in which to go. Is, is, that, a, is that what you're trying to do?
2: Yes the, the 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 reality here is people are part of nature and people and nature need to thrive in harmony together that wisdom exists for thousands of years you know in those communities and those particularly indigenous communities what doesn't work is a top down you know sort of almost colonialistic approach and this is what you need to do i think that The North, in a way, needs to listen deeper to that wisdom and begin to internalize the value, the value of culture, the value of, uh, you know, science and wisdom in terms of how to live in harmony together with nature. So, but ultimately, without those local communities owning and uh, being empowered and supported to drive this transition, I don't see there is a way forward. Uh, So, again, from a moral and ethical perspective, right, that deep listening is at the DNA of the Rainforest Alliance and that's what makes me proud, quite frankly, to be able to lead this organization. It's always been like that. Human rights, livelihoods are are at the center of the Rainforest Alliance uh, approach. And then from a practical perspective, you know this, Alan, very well. Look at the Mayan forest in the Yucatan Peninsula, etc., cetera, with thousands of years of culture and the ejidos, you know, and people working there. It's inimaginable to look at a solution without uh, putting at the center of those solutions, those community leaders.
1: But that blend is rare, unfortunately, because too often science ignores it. And, and this notion now that, that you're talking about and others are talking about of scientists saying we've got to understand because they know something about these forests that that we're not really capturing in our experiments and we can learn from them. That, that, that is, it's not a new approach, but it strikes me as, as you just said, a, a, a necessary approach. The analogous piece to that and the last note on my notes, I, I wrote in large words, democracy. The real test of everything we're talking about is whether it can be filtered through a democratic process that engages people, citizens, civil society, in actually, to quote Spike Lee, doing the right thing, or are we reliant on Orwellian top-down, you will do the right thing, which we know won't work. We we sought yellow vests. I mentioned them already. Um, That tension between Scientists telling us you got to do this and you got to do it now, and citizens saying I'm living my life, uh, help me live my life. How do how do we bridge that in the time frame we have? Because all of this, you know, much better than I is incredibly urgent.
2: That's that's another another thing that I admire about the reinforced lands and the reason why I joined, which is you know I remember when I was working at Unilever in London, and we were looking at the tea sector. And uh, anyways, issues on the supply chain and opportunities as well. The ability to join supply and demand, which at the end of the day means the ability to join sustainable agriculture practices, technical assistance, capacity building, you know, knowledge, etc., with a simplified citizen mobilization mechanism for conscious choice, right? Which at the end of the day is like a vote. When you you know, pick a product that is certified and it's sustainable, you're voting for one kind of, in a way, vision of the world you want, right? And so what I feel is that the sustainability movement has yet to do two things better. First, amplify the voice of, those, of that wisdom that we were just discussing of local communities. Listen deep and amplify in the advocacy conversations and the consumer conversations. Right Bring people closer together, the grower and the consumer, bring them back together, right? Because we are one. That you know old lady in a farm in the tropical forest could be my mother or my grandmother, that little kid, you know could be my daughter. We are, you know, connected to nature and connected to each other. So how do we amplify that voice? And how do we provide, going back full circle to your first point, Alan easier mechanisms for people to vote through their purchasing choices and through the election of government officials or through what they support, right? How do we translate and allow people to vote? That I think is a big part of this um, system change agenda.
1: What you just said is incredibly positive and optimistic. That is to say that if people are given the chance to choose, they will choose wisely, not every time, but more often
2: than not. Is, is that a fair, fair statement? I think so. I think increasingly, I mean, you, you just, I mean, just look at how uh, the new generations of thinking, the conversations when we were kids, you know, we didn't have any conversations at school or anywhere around climate change or sustainability, et cetera. This is becoming more mainstream, but of course, Like people, when they're buying, particularly, you know, when you have the poverty levels that we have in the world today, poverty at the supply side on the farmer communities and poverty at the demand side, people that don't have the means to buy uh, or the luxury to choose. They just need to buy whatever's the cheapest thing they can find to bring food to the table, you know, so you can't underwrite change on consumer choice. But you need to count it in. That's my point. And you need to align incentives and subsidies to support this transition versus the high carbon economies, right? And make it easier for people to choose those products and brands that are sustainable. That's the challenge. I'm not optimistic of people if I were in those conditions, either living without means in a tropical forest, uh, you know, or needing to bring something home for my family, definitely sustainability wouldn't be my lens, right? It's survival. But that's why these things are complex and they're intertwined. The social component with the environmental component. And uh, we need to look at them together. At the end of the day, when you walk the street of a slum in, you know, any of the Latin American countries or a tropical forest community, those things are deeply, deeply connected,
0: right?
1: Well, and that fundamentally is the challenge which the Rainforest Alliance faces, uh, which we all face, uh, and which I don't expect great things out of COP26, but I think it is contributing in an important way to raising the issues at a level that, that is demanding action? And it is that response that, that we need to hope for.
2: I think so. Again, for me, the the shift is this decade needs to see exponential delivery of the agenda, exponential action. it's like, yes, the science, yes, what, what we need to do, need to keep evolving, but how? To do it, where and with whom, is the key question for me. And so, hopefully, and for that action, you need supply chains to work together with governments and civil society and communities. And so, that's the challenge: can we sort of uh, move beyond our inclination for silver bullets and you know easy wins and cutting corners, and you know connect? and do the difficult collaboration work that is required to get sustainable impact on the ground. Can we do that? And how can civil society step up as well as that objective broker of cross fun- cross-sectoral collaboration? That's a big part of our agenda, Array. You know, how can we bring together key partners? And that's why the alliance part of the, you know, the a founding vision of Array is so important because without those that collaboration, without avoiding duplication, competition, fragmentation, incrementality of the efforts, and beginning to look at real integrated system change strategies, uh, it's difficult, right? The good news is a lot of people are thinking this way, you know, so CEOs of different NGOs, multilaterals, governments, uh, people in companies. Remember when I was at Unilever in the decade of the 2000s, right? Uh, The sustainability team was, they were like, I don't know, six people. And we were the leading company in the Dow Jones Index, you know, I used to manage the the report. When I left in 2011, the team was 30 to 40 people, right? So, and when you look at today, the teams you have in companies, you know, it's a lot of NGO people there, a lot of government people, companies are really, looking at sustainability as a core component of the corporate strategy Uh, and shareholders are demanding this as well, right? So I think there is change and I think it's, look with COVID, I thought, okay, this agenda will vanish. The opposite happened, right? I mean, we've seen an acceleration of the sustainability agenda in spite of such a big social kind of um, trauma, right? So that's a terrific point
1: to end on because COVID certainly demonstrated our inability to collaborate at a global level. Uh, but the reality on the ground of the warming planet doesn't accept that as an answer. And what you've just described and what, what Rainforest Alliance is doing is, yes, it's unique. We've never done it this way before. But we've also never had a problem like this before. So maybe we will rise to the challenge of this next decade, as, as you suggested. So thank you very much, Santiago, for this conversation and, and for the work that you do.
2: Thank you, Alan. Thanks so much for
1: having me.
0: Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.